when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The debate on how to tackle the cost of living crisis dominated the Tory leadership race this week, as Rishi Sunak insisted there were no easy solutions. Plans, whether they come from my opponent or indeed the energy companies or anyone else, who t- that seem to suggest that you can have absolutely everything you want and you don't have to make a difficult choice, that you can have lots of tax cuts, you can help people with the cost of living, borrowing doesn't matter, inflation will take care of itself. If That, that all sounds a bit too good to be true. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. As you'll know, over these summer weeks, we're focusing on the Tory leadership contest, the only story in town. We'll be checking in on the state of the race, who's likely to win, and is it still going to be Liz Truss, what both candidates have been saying about the economy and taxes, their proposed for the cost of living crisis, but also the question about whether there needs to be an ethics advisor in Whitehall. To analyse, I'm delighted to be joined by our chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, political correspondent, Jasmine cameron Sleshy, and special guest, Gerard Lyons, chief economic strategist at NetWealth, a wealth management company. Welcome, Jim, Jasmine and Gerard. It's great to have you back. Let's begin with the overall state, Jasmine, of the Tory leadership race. Two weeks to go now until we get our next prime minister. And this week at feels as if the dynamics have gone from is Liz Truss going to win to what's she going to do when she becomes Prime Minister? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the race feels a little bit stagnant now because, you know, as you said, there's a sense that we all think it's going to be Truss who wins. Obviously, Rishi Sunak is appearing on any media outlet that will have him and he's sort of saying it's all to play for, but, you know, realistically it isn't. And the Truss team are putting together their ideas for, you know, who will be in Cabinet, who's going to be leading policy. I think what is quite striking, though, is that given that we all assume that it's going to be Liz Truss, you would think that she would be trying to broaden her appeal at this point. So we know that she seems to have won the support of the bulk of the membership based on polling. But actually, in some of these you know, last couple of hustings, she really should be thinking about talking to the electorate as a whole. Because we know that Johnson managed to win over red wall seats, blue wall seats in 2019. And the next PM will have to hold on to that majority and really capture the heart of the nation. And there's been some polling that says that you know, amongst Tory members, Johnson's still the most popular between the two of them. And actually between Truss and Rishi Sunak, Sunak's seen as the one who can appeal to swing voters. So I think she does need to be sort of pivoting away from Tory members, the majority of whom have already voted now, and towards the general public and actually be giving her message to the country. Well, Jim, I think this is the key issue, really, that the hustings are still ongoing. We saw two this week. And really, the messages that both candidates were putting across were quite core messages. So Rishi Sunak gave a big interview to The Spectator magazine where he talked about his lockdown scepticism, saying that, in fact, during the coronavirus pandemic, he'd been sceptical of all the measures that were being brought in. And then on the Liz Truss side of things, she talked actually about taking NHS money from the health and social care levy and putting it into social care, not reforming the health service. So as Jasmine said, it very much feels as if they're still focused on the base, not the country. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's two points here. The first is that I think I've learned from experience over the last decade or two not to think that any competition is in the bag right until we get the result. I mean, remember what happened with Donald Trump? Remember, of course, the Brexit vote? Surprises do happen. I mean, of course, we presume it's Liz Truss, but we cannot be totally sure. I've been on holiday for three weeks. I came back at the start of this week, so I have a very good sense of what it's like to be a member of the public who's only following things with with half an eye. And Bits of the contest are drifting out to the wider public. There was that bizarre moment when Rishi Sunak boasted to the people of Tunbridge Wells that he'd shifted spending from you know, poor former labour areas to affluent places like Tunbridge Wells. I think the general public is aware that Liz Truss is talking about tax cuts at a time where a lot of people think that the government can't afford them. But generally, I think it just sounds like so much noise to a lot of the general public who think, why are they not talking about one thing only, it's the economy, stupid. Why aren't they coming up with plans for the cost of living crisis? Because we, the general public, only care about the fact that household energy bills are about to triple, inflation's running at double digits. People are genuinely fearful for how they're going to get through the winter. That's the only thing, really, that they care about right now. And the contest doesn't seem entirely alive to that. Well, Jared, from your perspective on this, it's become again increasingly clear this week that Kwasi Kwarteng is going to be the next Chancellor of the Exchequer. And when you speak to people on Truss's leadership campaign, they're not talking about if it's going to be Mr. Kwarteng, more about what he's going to do when he gets there. Over the past couple of days, what have you made of the various policy pronouncements from our potential next Prime Minister? Well, I think the debate in recent weeks has become far more constructive. Effectively, the UK economy is in a very similar situation to other G7 countries. The economy is slowing, inflationary pressures are building, the outlook over the next 12 to 18 months looks very difficult indeed. We all know that monetary policy, which clearly is outside the remit of the politicians, that looks set to tighten further. But the key issue in the UK is that we're the only G7 country that has tightened fiscal policy significantly. One clear message that has emerged from the Trust campaign is that she's going to tackle that head on. Fiscal policy looks set to ease, both to tackle the current economic situation as much as it can, and also, more recently, the energy crisis has come more to the fore. So I think as we're approaching that 5th of September date, I think we're likely to see more policies emerge, and the announcement of a fiscal event, I think, is clearly expected, but very important in itself. Before we come on to the cost of living, Jasmine, we did a piece in the FT this week about Trustworld, all the advisors and people who are likely to be in her cabinet. And again, that's coming into view. So I mentioned Mr. Kwartang in the in the Treasury, Suella Baverman, who's the Attorney General, being promoted to Home Secretary, Therese Coffey, who's again a very close ally of Liz Truss, potentially being the first female Chief Whip. So we're starting to get the feel of the government, but also her Downing Street operation. And it feels like it's going to be a very tight-knit group of people who've either worked with Trust in in the Foreign Office or have a long-standing relationship with her. And that will be quite different to the feel of the Boris Johnson government, which never had that coherence to it that Liz Truss seems to be striving for. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair point. I mean, you know, if we look at the last couple of months of the Johnson administration, it was beset with chaos and resignations and, you know, comings coming in and coming out. But as you say, it does seem to be individuals who have proven themselves to be very loyal to Truss. You know, we don't really hear any names where you think, oh, you know, maybe Truss and that individual haven't got on. You know, she is bringing in a loyal team. And in that way, she is quite similar to Johnson. It was interesting what Gerald was saying about, you know, we're seeing more policies being introduced. But I actually think her NHS pledge was an example of a slight misstep this week. She'd been saying repeatedly throughout the campaign trail that she wanted to divert more money to social care. But now in, I think it was Tuesday's hustings, she sort of fleshed out that idea a little bit more, saying that she's going to scrap the national insurance levy, but still pay, you know, 12, 13 billion 
on healthcare and that money is not going to go towards the NHS, it's going to go towards social care. And it really felt as though she didn't really speak to anyone in the NHS about this because there's been a bit of a pushback. And you do sort of wonder what was the reason for saying that now? I mean, there's a sense that she's going to win. Why would you introduce a policy that seemed untested, seemed uncosted? It seemed a bit sloppy. From my sense. I, mean, I mean, I think one of the things that people have observed about the people around Liz Truss is that quite a few of them seem relatively young in their 20s or 30s. They have government experience, but how much deep government experience and, and you know, where, where are the kind of heavily experienced economic or foreign policy experts to advise her? Now, of course, once she gets through the doors of Number 10 Downing Street, she can hire these people and, and things could change. And one of the marks of the Boris Johnson regime, of course, was that the people around him changed quite frequently. But you, know, you could argue that changing your advisors for better advisors is not you know, in itself a bad thing necessarily. There's not actually that much churn in Trust World, Jim, when you think about it. You know, you and I have probably come across Liz Trust for a good 12 years now since she first became an MP and she entered the cabinet in 2014 as Environment Secretary. And for example, her special advisor then was a lady called Ruth Porter. And Ruth Porter, as we report in the FT this week, is tipped for a very senior role within Downing Street. And in Westminster, having somebody who's there for a good seven or eight years advising someone is quite rare. Yes, I mean, she she values loyalty. But I mean, Ruth hasn't advised Liz for quite a long time. Actually, she's been working in a Finsbury PR company. So it's, it's not as if she's necessarily been in there during the recent term. No, there's obviously formal advice and informal advice as well. Now, let's move on to the cost of living issue, which is still the dominant concern for the country and underpinning the whole contest. And Liz Truss was asked again on Sky News what she was going to do if she wins. This is what she had to say. I'm very aware that many people across Britain are struggling. And what I will make sure, if I'm elected as Prime Minister, and my Chancellor would make sure, is that we're doing all we can to support people. But the first port of call has to be reducing taxes, because it's not right to take money from people in taxes and giving back to them in benefits. Jared, when you hear that back, this has been the consistent message from Liz Truss throughout, which is saying that whereas Rishi Sunak has talked about not cutting taxes and potentially doing another big bailout package to help people with their energy bills, Ms. Truss is not quite going there yet. And we obviously did an interview with her in the FT a couple of weeks ago where she said no handout and she's kind of walked back from that position. What do you make of where she is and what kind of things do you think she could do? Well, given the scale of the energy crisis and given the problems rising on the economy, it's quite clear that that Liz Truss has to really hit the ground running. Naturally, the energy crisis and the economic environment merge into one. So the early fiscal event is very important indeed. And she essentially has to unveil policies that will work immediately, as well as try and set the framework for the future. So if it comes to tax policy, it really comes into three combined areas. Regardless of what has been said so far, the reality is that the seriousness of the situation means that further help needs to be provided. So it's temporary, targeted and timely help needs to be provided to those people most in need. And even though the current government has provided help up to an energy cap of 2,800, we all know now it's going to be significantly more than that. The Centre for Social Justice I was reading the other day think that from this autumn it will be a hit of £153 per month to 
households in the poorest areas. So there's three areas. One, the timely targeted temporary help. Second, the cuts in, in tax that ease the fuel price increase. Uh, Liz Truss has talked about the environmental levy being suspended. There are possibly other measures that could be unveiled there. But then third area is the more general tax environment that is there to help the economy as well as to provide help to people more generally through the near-term challenges. And that implies not only reversing the planned increase in corporation tax for next spring, but more particularly for immediate help to households now, it's about reversing national insurance. And in all likelihood, I would expect to, to cut income tax and announce that allowances or thresholds have been increased into line with inflation. Hopefully, there will be more to come as we move into next spring, for instance, indexing the tax system, raising benefits more quickly in line with inflation. Really, what she needs to do is hit the ground running, both in terms of the economy and tax measures, and in particular on the energy crisis, both to have an immediate impact with the general public and also to keep the financial markets on side as well. Now, Jim, we've had two stories this week that cover the areas Jared was talking about. Number one was this story about the fact Liz Trust will not be consulting the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, that does sets out where the country's finances are going to be when you have a budget. Now, the fact you won't be consulting the OBR means it's not a full budget. They're now calling it a special fiscal event, which is just the kind of thing we love the sound of, of the FT. <laughs> the other thing as well, of course, was your story about what the energy companies are proposing to try and solve the bill crisis awesome. So how do you see the landscape compared to what Jared was saying and what you've been picking up? Yeah, so the whole point about the OPR not having a look at this fiscal event, I mean, the point the trust campaign makes is that normally the OBR requires 10 weeks to draw up their detailed economic forecast and therefore if she's going to do this in mid-September, there's not enough time. So they're saying this is not about avoiding scrutiny and the OBR can have a look at the public finances later in the autumn. But from the Sunak camp's perspective, this is basically her trying to hide from scrutiny at a time when she's promising something close to 40 or 50 billion pounds of tax cuts, also sort of hinting that she'll also be able to rescue households from these rising energy prices. And when you put those two things together, it basically creates another black hole in Britain's public finances, which are already in a pretty bad state. Some listeners may not be aware that we owe more than £2 trillion. For all the Tories have said over the last 12 years about reducing deficits and so on, we owe more than £2 trillion and therefore can we really afford tax cuts at the same time as helping people. But let's see what she says. I mean, she has made these specific tax cut promises on national insurance and on corporation tax, so therefore she probably will have to go ahead. But there's, there's a bit of me that just wonders whether... It's a bit like the the whole Brexit NHS bus where you basically make something the focus of the debate, you put your opponent on the other side, in this case Rishi Sunak, and he is, basically looks like the guy who opposes tax cuts. You get into power, maybe she could backpedal on those and slow them down a bit. Jared, could you ask get your thoughts on that? What Liz Truss has raised in the campaign is very important. It's about the orthodoxy at the centre. We have this ridiculous situation, in my view, where the thinking in the Treasury, and it's reflecting in some respects at the OBR, is that trend growth is low, and therefore that implies that more of the budget deficit is structural. And that therefore, in their minds, justifies either spending cuts or tax increases. And in some respects, even though the politics of now to 10 years ago may be very different, economically, it's the same argument that justified the austerity of a decade ago, which in my view was wrong. And it's the same argument that's justifying the tax increases that we've seen now, which again, in my mind is wrong. Effectively, it's like being in a hole and digging deeper. Now, we all know we need to increase the trend rate of growth. What Truss has said, and therefore I think she's right on this, is to say, let's challenge head on this orthodoxy. Let's try and turn it on its head 
and argue about the need to raise growth. Now, at the very least, the stance of fiscal policy at the moment is wrong. To tighten fiscal policy in the UK as we head into a downturn would be seen by most economists as not appropriate. In my view, easing fiscal policy is necessary, it's affordable, and it's not inflationary. Effectively, borrowing is a policy option at the moment. It shouldn't be seen as a constraint. And that's still possible within the framework of having determination to keep the fiscal finances or the public finances sound. Really, the government can borrow very cheaply in real terms now. So in some respects, it's about freeing up the fiscal side to address the immediate economic challenge. We have a situation where we have a twin problem facing the UK, higher inflationary pressures and weaker domestic demand. Tighter monetary policy is necessary to address the inflationary pressure and an easier fiscal stance, of which tax cuts are just one component, but transfer payments to those people most in difficulty is another important component. That easing fiscal stance, I think, is necessary. And given the nature of our inflation shock, which is primarily a supply-side shock exacerbated by very inappropriate and poor monetary policy over the last year and a half, is necessary if it's timely and targeted as has been talked about in the last few weeks. I think the only question on that point is whether, given that we know that inflation is going through the roof and interest rates are rising all around the world, including our own, is it a little complacent to be thinking that we can borrow incredibly cheaply for years to come, given that the general direction of travel is, is in a direction of much higher government repayments on gills? Well, there's a couple of issues here. First, in terms of the debt repayment, the Treasury, in many respects, tends to actually sort of overstate this problem. Clearly, we need to keep borrowing costs down as much as possible, but about 40% of the borrowing is index-linked. And the increase in the borrowing component there is linked to RPI payments on the index-linked gilts. It doesn't come out of day-to-day budgetary spending. So in that respect, it's not comparable to departmental spending. Clearly, the other component needs to be addressed. But more importantly, it's about... Uh, making sure that we get the economy on the right trajectory so that fiscal policy actually starts to stabilise output and the economy within the framework of longer-term fiscal credibility. And in the last few years, we've had a lot of fiscal rules. And at the first sign of difficulty, they're often discarded. The key fiscal rule for the markets is reducing debt to GDP and having solvency in terms of your public finances. So as long as we talk about fiscal policy in that appropriate term, then I think the worries that you've alluded to, which shouldn't be ignored but should be kept in context, I think can be addressed. Now, Jasmine, one person who's certainly not changed their view on all this is Rishi Sunak. At one of the hustings this week, he used some very tough words to describe Liz Truss's plans. If we carried on with that plan, if I don't win this, and that's the plan that we carry on with as a party, millions of people are going to face the risk of destitution this winter. Literally millions. And if we don't do anything to avert that... I think it will be a moral failure of the Conservative government, and I don't think the British people would ever forgive us. So pretty tough words there, and this has raised the question, if Liz Truss does win as we expect, will Rishi Sunak vote for this fiscal event? Would he vote for a Liz Truss budget? I mean, he sort of backpedaled on this this week. So there were some suggestions at an earlier hosting that he wouldn't support Truss's plans and he wouldn't support any emergency budget that she put forward, which does make sense because actually, I mean, his argument is that what she's doing, as you know, as we heard, is morally wrong, that it will plunge you know families into destitution. So why would he vote for it? And then on Thursday, he seemed to row back on those comments saying, actually, while I'm a conservative, whether I'm a backbencher or in cabinet, I will always support what the government does. It's an odd thing for him to row back on 
I do think with trust, she's in quite a strange position where I think she's clearly very ideological. She holds certain beliefs, for example, that, you know, the country should be implementing tax cuts. But I genuinely wonder how firm she can hold on those come September when we are seeing rising inflation, rising energy bills. And I just think that she's going to have to be more flexible than she realises. And Jim, just to come back to the thing we mentioned earlier, your story about what the energy companies are proposing to do here. Now, this is something that a meeting that went on in Whitehall with Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary was mm-hmm. present and Rishi Sunak has rejected what was put forward there on the radio on Thursday. So tell us about it and whether you think Liz Truss might go for what the companies are suggesting. The point about Truss's position is she starts the month with this interview in the FT saying that she didn't believe in handouts, inverted commas, but she has subtly shifted her position towards suggesting that she is open to the idea of helping people through this winter and also specifically helping companies through the winter. They're not protected by any kind of price cap at all. There's a growing realisation that employers throughout the country, whether they're private sector, whether they're schools, hospitals, are also going to have to heat these buildings and that is part of the same crisis. What happened in recent days is that Keith Anderson, who's the chief executive of Scottish Power, one of the big six energy providers, had a meeting with Kwasi Kwarteng and he put forward this proposal to cap bills at their level before Friday's off-gem increase, so just below £2,000, and said that this would cost, if you did it for two years, £100 billion. Now, this is a proposal that's been knocking around for quite a while. It was put forward by Anderson in the spring. It was put forward again earlier in the summer. But the price of it is going up and up. And the key thing here is the duration, that the industry believes that this crisis is going to go on for two years, which is quite striking. Now, I wouldn't see this £100 billion plan as something that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are likely to adopt in full. They're much more likely to do something targeted at more vulnerable people. But the way I would see this £100 billion figure is the yardstick against which any government intervention by the trust or Sunak, but probably trust government, is going to do if it falls massively short of £100 billion, we can see what this crisis is going to cost ordinary people. And Gerard, what did you make of these proposals here? Because it's very different from what the Labour Party are proposing when they've said essentially the government should throw money at this problem by freezing the price cap where it is. And some people in Labour have gone even further. Gordon Brown, the former Chancellor and Prime Minister, has said that even if they can't be controlled, all the energy companies should be nationalised. And that's obviously not something Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak are going to look to do. But when I saw the proposal on Jim's story, it did strike me this is the kind of thing a trust government could do to get the country through the winter. But then, of course, it faces a problem come next year. And if prices are still high, you've got to keep it going. And then those sums really start to add up. There seems to be two proposals now, the one that Jim's touched on. And the benefit of that is the simplicity of it in terms of fixing prices. But the cost of it is prohibitive. It's not clear to me that that's the right economic approach to take. Economically, the approach that's best is to allow the price mechanism to work in the sense of even though the price is exorbitantly high, we shouldn't cap it, but to then have significant transfer payments. But the scale of that help is not going to be, as Jim's touched on, possible to help everyone cover everything. Clearly, we can't have a universal bailout. And also, at the same time, it's important that the government does not have an open-ended commitment because we don't know how high energy prices are going to remain and for how long. So the best economic approach is to allow the price mechanism to take effect because that would deter people from maybe using as much energy as they might otherwise do if the price was capped. But the two other points that we've seen in the last week is the greater realisation of how many small, medium-sized firms might need to have some assistance. But again, not all of them can be helped out. And also to come back on the point Jasmine was talking about, 
even though the fiscal event has focused a lot of attention in the media on the tax side and the transfer payment side, we also have to bear in mind that departmental spending has in real terms really been squeezed by higher inflation. And therefore, there will be a need to provide help to a number of departments. How much they can be helped out remains to be seen. So help would need to be provided. I don't think we can afford to go down that deficit fund, but let's see, the politicians might prefer it because of the simplicity. And I think the other point which feels almost indecent to raise is whether the appetite of the public for the war in Ukraine, for supporting Ukrainian resistance against Russia, I mean, across Western countries, not just the UK, whether that will continue in the face of these bills. And of course, Boris Johnson in Kiev this week said, you know, we're only paying in higher bills, the Ukrainian people are paying in blood. But let's see where the public mood goes on that one. Well, it's interesting that Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's former advisor, um, tweeted about this and said the public will not endure uh, and was saying that Europe will keep buying Russian oil at massive prices, financing Putin's wars. Now, finally, Jasmine, I want to pick up on something else that was mentioned at one of the Hustings events this week. This is a slightly different one, but something that we've written quite a lot about at the FT, which Liz Truss was asked if she becomes prime minister, would she appoint a new independent advisor on ministerial interest. This is the person who oversees the ministerial code and makes sure ministers do what they're supposed to and stay in line. This is what she had to say. I do think one of the problems we've got in this, in this country and the way we approach things is, you know, we have numerous advisors and independent bodies and rules and regulations. For me, it's about understanding the difference between right and wrong. And I'm somebody who has always acted with integrity. I have always been clear about what I will do and followed through on my promises and been honest about the situation. So that sounds as if she's not going to replace Lord Christopher Geist and will leave that role empty. And that does raise this question of... Is she going to try and have a reset of government ethics following the various wallpaper gate, party gate scandals that happened under Boris Johnson? Her response is quite interesting. I mean, she certainly didn't commit to anything firmly. And it was strange to me because so much of the Johnson era was defined by this sort of air of sleaze, whether it was, you know, re- relating to the um, refurbishment of the Downing Street flat, whether it was the Chris Finch allegations. There was so much of that towards the very end of Johnson's premiership that you really think that actually to draw a clear line between the Johnson era and any sort of trust premiership, it was quite an easy win for her to say, actually, yes, I would appoint a new advisor. You know, we can have someone independently overseeing the ethics of government. So the fact that she didn't commit to that and seemed to say, well, actually, as PM, I know know the difference between right and wrong, I'll use my judgment, seems slightly odd. But I do think for the wider public, there's a feeling of, well, hang on a minute, how are you any different from the guy that's just been replaced? And this speaks to the fact as well, as you said, that... uh, If you look at why Boris Johnson's premiership came to an end, in my view, it started with the Owen Patterson saga way back last year and then obviously went through Partygate, the fact that he got fined, and then, of course, the Chris Pinch affair as well. And I think if Liz Truss wanted to come in and try and really reset public expectations of the Tory party, then he would say, we're going to do this, we're going to tackle this, you're going to also going to have a look at all the sexual harassment allegations against Conservative MPs. You know, there's been five this year alone, three of them are still under investigation. Whereas, in fact, she seems to be leaning into the fact she is continuity Boris Johnson on this and sort of not saying that, you know, politics is a messy business, but I'm a good person, and that's ultimately what matters. 
Yeah, it feels a little bit like a missed opportunity because, as you said, I mean, there was so much about sexual harassment in Westminster that, you know, we rose about it, others rose about it. A new premiership is an opportunity to look back on the old premiership and reflect and say, actually, where do we need to change as a government? What sort of behaviour do we need to set for our ministers and for our MPs? But I do think one argument that Johnson consistently gave to his supporters was actually it was the media who was over-hyping some of these scandals. And actually, it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as it was made out to be. And I feel like we've seen on the hustings trail Liz sort of lean into that you know saying the media are asking the wrong questions or or something to that effect and it does make you think actually is there a feeling in sort of top Tory circles that it was all overhyped and therefore it doesn't you know there's not that much of a problem after all. Jim just very briefly on this does any of this matter do you think and do you think when we get started looking towards the next election which as we reported this week is probably going to be towards the end of 2024 because the trust government want as much time as possible to try and get things in this odour of sleaze that's that's developed around the government and the Conservative Party and what Liz Truss has said here is she's not that interested in kind of tackle that but in fact thinks people are concerned about more fundamentals the economy all the stuff we've been talking about yeah I mean I think it's a kind of complicated one where if people think that the government is super competent then maybe they'd allow a bit of sleaze here and there if you're simultaneously immersed in sleaze and bills are tripling, inflation's heading for 18% and all the rest of it, then it becomes a bit of a sort of unpleasant cocktail that that will turn people against the political party. Whether that means that they're jumping up and down to embrace Keir Starmer's labour is obviously another question for another day. Well, Jim, Jasmine and Gerald, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you'd like the podcast, then please do subscribe. You know where to find us or the usual places you receive episodes to get them every Saturday morning. We also like a positive review and a nice rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Carlos San Juan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.